You are listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and on this week's episode, Tom talks with Karen Cater and Vic Vlucic. Karen Cater began her career in Alaska as a teacher and a special assistant for telecommunications for the governor of Alaska. This led to Apple, where she directed their leadership and advocacy efforts in education. She then was appointed to lead the Office of EdTech in the Obama administration, which culminated in her joining Digital Promise as CEO in 2013. Vic Vucic is the Chief Innovation Officer at Digital Promise Global. Before his time at Digital Promise Global, Vic consulted with a number of foundations and organizations on education technology, innovation, and philanthropy. Prior to consulting, Vic developed strategies and managed over $100 million in technology-focused grants at the Hewlett Foundation to launch and grow the Open Educational Resources Movement and create and advance the deeper learning strategy. Let's listen in as Tom talks with these esteemed guests about EdTech and the invention opportunity. Karen Gator and Vic Puchek, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Hey, it's great to have you guys here. I was doing a little bit of research, Karen, and I uh, was reminded that Digital Promise was authorized as part of the Higher Ed Act in 2008 and then launched, uh, so it was signed into law by Bush and then launched by uh, Obama in 2011, I think I was actually at the ceremony where, yeah. where uh, Arne Duncan uh, launched Digital Promise. Was that in, in 2011? It was, September 2011, and I think you probably were there. We invited uh, all of the kind of who's who that we knew in, um, in t- education and innovation, uh, research, um, entrepreneurship, and um, had an event at the White House. So yes, it was a it was a big deal. We had the board of Digital Promise, and we, um, you know, had a, a variety of, of kind of big conversations in addition to kind of the the, the initial um, launch. Yeah, it was great. It was a great day. At, at the time, you were leading the uh, the Office of Education Technology. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that you're part of a great lineage in that office. Um, I think it started with Linda Roberts. It included Susan Patrick, our friend mm-hmm. John Bailey. Yeah. Um, it, it's included Katrina Stevens and, and Rich Collada, really great group of people um, before you and, and uh, after you. So we appreciate your leadership in that role. Yes, I was at the Office of EdTech when we, when, we had, when we launched Digital Promise. One of the things that we had to do was put together a board, and the way that the statute was written was that the board would be a, um, appointed by the Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan at the time, um, from names provided by Congress. And so it was mm-hmm. an interesting um, uh, project that <laughs> me and folks in my office Actually, uh, me and folks in my office had to figure that whole uh, process out. And it was a little bit of a chicken and egg because the thing didn't exist. So we're asking people to be part of something and and join a board for something that didn't actually exist. And it couldn't exist until it had a board. It was a a very interesting process. Long story short, it got launched. Um, Adam Frankel was an amazing um, first uh, director of the of the. Of the of digital promise, and um, he got it all launched. You know, he had I think five hundred thousand dollars and a you know fax machine, and I think the uh, Aspen Institute took him in, gave him an office, right. and um, he, he right. got I it all launched. I yeah. visited with Adam and uh, Sarah Shapiro, and then he the, hired Sarah Shapiro to to lead the work with um, 
with uh, the League of the Innovative League. Schools, yes, which yeah. was really the, the, the initiative that, that started, that was the kind of the launch initiative for Digital Promise, and that sustained it for the first couple years. You know, I, I've been thinking, Karen, that um, education is really different than other sectors of the economy. Um, when I think about health and biotech, for example, there's a really thick link to basic science. And there's a layer of R&D that's uh, public and private funding. And that mm -hmm. most innovation in medicine and biotech emerges from basic science and, and R&D. And then it influences not only tool development, but practice in a really systematic way. And in education, we just don't have that historic direct link to science. And we, we've never really had a thick layer of R&D. And as a result, seems like Digital Promise has had a really important uh, role and unique role in that R&D space of helping to link uh, science to practice. Was, was that part of the, the mission? The mission, the, it was initially launched and called the National Center for Research in Advanced Information and Digital Technology. So the, the initial idea was to create a very significant fund. The idea was actually to use, use money from Spectrum Auctions to put together a fund that would really support um, advanced R&D. Um, the money didn't actually materialize from the Spectrum Auctions, but um, the concept has, has sort of stayed alive. I would say we haven't made you know, a, a tremendous amount of progress in getting advanced R&D moving, but we started by saying Research is incredibly important, and how do we make a much tighter linkage between research and what we do know from basic research on learning and, um, and practice, and practice both in education practitioners and leaders and also entrepreneurs who are building products, who are making things that people will be using. So we set out um, to connect those things. But I would say the three things that are missing in education, um, R&D, money, so that's the big one, right? So healthcare and, and defense and intelligence and energy and some of these other sectors have a tremendous amount of money. Uh, Tom Khalil used to say there's more money in R&D around potato chips than there is around education. I have never done that math myself, but I trust him um, to know what he's talking about. The second problem is time. The, the kinds of things that go to market are sort of fast moving, they're startups, they, they need to you know, get past their initial um, design and development quickly so they can start making money, so they can raise more money. So this whole time constraint um, really hinders uh, the, the careful implementation and understanding of science. And then the third is incentives, right? There just have not been the incentives. The demand side, the districts have not demanded products that are grounded in basic research on learning as much as they should. So we have tried to work on both sides. One, making sure people understand research. So we launched the research map, which was this visualization and still is a visualization of over 100,000 peer-reviewed research articles. Um, added videos, you know, everyone from, um, you know, David Rose talking about autism and, and other scientists talking about different topics. And then also launch things like Ask a Researcher. So all of these ways that we really wanted people to understand the basic research on learning so that they could put it in their minds and implement it and include it in both their practice and their, their product cycles. But, you know, more money is needed. The time constraints need to be 
um, figured out. We need pre-competitive R&D is really where we need to, to build up much more, um, uh, much more effort and then um, build in those incentives, make sure the demand side understands why they should be asking for uh, research-based um, products and practices. Let me bring in your Chief Information Officer, Vic Vucek. Um, Vic, Innovation Officer. I, I was doing some research, um, Vic, and this, this made me love you even more. I, I found out that you took a, a break while you were studying as an engineer uh, to study um, jazz flute at uh, Berkeley in Boston. Is that right? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely that is, right. That is that very was... cool. Do you still play? I actually don't. <clears throat> Sadly, I haven't for a while, but um, I was torn between engineering and music. And I was really, uh, studying engineering was challenging, let's just say. And I told my parents, I need to figure this out. Give me a year. And I went to Berkeley College of Music. It was amazing. But then I realized, you know what, I, I think I'd like to do the engineering stuff. And so I, I came back. I still kept playing for a while um, up and down the East Coast. And it was, a, it was definitely a fun and, and impactful time in my life. That's awesome. Do you still do you have a favorite of uh, uh, flautist these days? Anyone you would listen to? Yeah, I mean, you have. Um, well, I mean, I got started with Jeff Rotel, Ian Anderson. There was just an amazing uh, interview online. Dan Rather, I think it was that interviewed him, which was wow. super fascinating. And he, you know, he's he's older now, but he's still he's still doing stuff. And so that that got me started. But then I got into some of the jazz artists. Uh, uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, it, a deep dive into jazz really gives you a different way to think about um, systems, about improvisation, about innovation. So love, love that, um, finding out about that creative streak. I also want to give you and, and, uh, Mike Smith some props for those that don't know that you and Mike are sort of the godfathers of OER. You, you launched this, uh, the age of open education resources in your career at the, the Hewlett Foundation. So really appreciate all your work there. Thank you. I would add Kathy Casserly to that too. So, but yes. it was the three of us that really launched. No, that. that's great. Three of you really um, broke open a, a kind of a new era of uh, of open and charitable resources. So, appreciate that and Thank and you. your role at uh, at Digital Promise uh, with projects like Learner Variability. But I wanted to uh, talk about the subject of innovations in learning. Um, and and important the important role that digital promise plays. So I, I both I'm looking for some examples um, in your portfolio, but also um, opinions that you've developed about um, about the future of learning. And so maybe we can start with just a, a a few headlines from both of you about the innovations in in learning and development that um, that you're most excited about or that you think are uh, potentially most important? What's on your short list, Karen? You know, you're going to kind of laugh at this. Um, I remember back in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, when um, you and I, I think it was actually, we saw each other in the airport and we decided to say, you know, let's say by 2014, every student has a device and every classroom has internet access. Right. And, and we thought if we say it, it will happen. And um, little did we know at the time, it really took a pandemic to make that, make that so. <laughs> so, so 
Isn't, isn't that true? And I think with, with friends like Evan Marwell, who started uh, yeah. Education. Superhighway, you know, a bunch of us sort of patted ourselves on the back by 2018, 2019, as we were getting closer to one-to-one, and most schools were wired. And I think we, we've learned now that we really didn't pay enough attention to broadband access at home for learners and for teachers, yeah. right? That's been a, a tough lesson this year that there's probably... 20, maybe even 30 million Americans uh, that, that don't have reliable access at home. But that's true. That was almost 10 years ago we had that hope. So I think that one of the things that I'm actually super excited about is I think, you know, post-pandemic, we will, the thing that's happened with the pandemic is not only this focus on home internet access, which we haven't solved, but we're seeing some interesting um, solutions coming to the fore, but we also are seeing students with their own device, and that is important. And so then we can see more and more innovation around devices, whether it's the, you know, whatever devices kids have, making sure that they have full access to the appropriate, all the appropriate parts of the internet, and also full access to uh, productivity tools and creativity tools and cameras, and you know, we'll we'll enter into augmented reality um, and and some of those kinds of things. So. That is actually an, an innovation. It, you know what? It seems it seems like it's not an innovation, but it actually is an incredible inv- advancement that every student will have a device. So it's now we're past the why should we use technology and why should every kid have their own to, okay, we're there. Now, how do we make sure that the right tools are in their hands and that teachers know, right. you know wh- wh- how to use it for which students? And Karen, has your work with Verizon um, helped ad- advance that work? Absolutely. And over the Verizon schools, so we have 264 schools now. We've just added about 10 high schools to the mix. Uh, the rest are all middle schools. Um, with that work, when, when, again, when the pandemic hit, we had um, every student in those schools and every teacher in those schools had the device plus the data plan. So they could use the devices inside of school and outside of school. That was a start. But the other thing those schools had that stood them in so much ahead of the pack, um, they had a coach. Every school had their own um, coach. And so teachers, when they were like struggling, trying to figure out what do we do now, and teachers are amazingly creative and, you know, problem solvers with minimal resources, they had their coach that could come up alongside them and help them solve challenges um, for individual kids. So the, the Verizon schools have definitely been an amazing place to learn and to capture, um, you know, practices that can be, that can be shared across the, across the country. Rick, what what are your headlines? What what are the innovations that you're most excited about? Yeah, so I think uh, a couple areas that I think overlap with a lot of what Karen said. You know, first there is still basic blocking and tackling around devices and bandwidth, right? And that has to happen. And COVID really shined a spotlight on that. So continuing that, and then as she talked about, you know, it's funny. I remember a conversation Karen and I had a few months ago, where we were like, you know, in the previous decade, it was how do we get teachers to use technology. Right. That was, you know, we would lament, say they're not using it. Well, all this stuff. Well, guess what? Now everybody's using it. Right. But now it's that they have 150 apps being thrown at them. And how do you integrate this? Right. And, and bring it together and make it coherent and, and know how to use this. So I think this next almost decade is kind of integration and supporting and embedding and pedagogy and really thinking powerfully in that. Um, a third area is just kind of learning everywhere and leveraging that. You know, I heard a, a stat that every day right. there's over a bi- billion hours of learning videos watched on YouTube, um, which is incredible. Um, and I see my kids learn. My kid learned how to fish. He just caught a 25 pound salmon 
basically by watching YouTube and like, mm. it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and then the last one, which is really big and, and we're doing a lot of work in this ties into the learner variability work is bringing in the whole child into learning environment design and technology design and to how we think about kind of everything. And I'll just give a really quick anecdote. We just launched a product certification mm -hmm. uh, around learner variability and uh, we made it mandatory and we heard this from teachers, they wanted this, mandatory that you had at least some social emotional learning supports mm -hmm. in your product. And we got questions from products that say, hey, we're math products, why are you for fo forcing us to embed social emotional learning in this? And we're like, that's exactly you know, our point. Like you need to do, everybody needs to think about this in an integrated fashion. And, um, and that's just as important. And I think that's, you know, people are, you know, understanding and realizing the importance of whole child, but how do we really integrate it and bring it into everything we do and not just have as, as a separate silo. And then I would just add on to that, the, the, I love that. And the, the other um, piece of that is the personalization for individual students. And so what Vic's team has done, and I know you've supported as well, Tom, is really thinking about, um, how people are different one from the next. And so we know now, and we've always known, one size does not fit all, and we, you can't just blanket a, a, a classroom with the same kind of um, strategies. And so now getting many more strategies that can be focused on specific needs, if a student's dyslexic, dys, has dyscalculia, just has low, mem low, low working memory, I mean, all of these kinds of things, learning much more from the learning sciences, and then being able to put them into strategies that people can actually try with, with individual kids. I mean, that is another innovation, and we need to learn much, much more about this and, and um, begin to um, sort of systematize how we actually think about that and how we do it. Karen, earlier you mentioned the League of Innovative Schools that was launched back in 2011. It, uh, it now includes um, 114 districts, is that right? Almost 3,900 schools, 3 million kids. What's, what's the role the, the League of Innovative Schools plays and in relationship to innovation? Yeah, so, so the, the schools are selected because they have looked at things that, that are emerging and new, and they have tried things and gotten better at them. So they have some track record of, of trying new things. So whether it is around maker learning or robotics or other kinds of STEM advancements, um, you know, coding or computational thinking, or whether it's around uh, literacy initiatives or, you know, whatever it is, we look broadly at innovation thinking, what are the things you're trying and what is the evidence that there's some sort of some sort of impact? And so um, that's, first of all, how they're selected. So we have 114 districts now that are part of this. And I would say what they, a couple hugely important um, things that they do. One is they convene with each other and share ideas, solve challenges together, inform challenges. So in case somebody else is working on that challenge, they can, they can be more informed about how it plays out in different, different places. Um, so, so that's kind of one really important part. Part two of that is air cover. When they try something new at home, they can say, it's not just us. All these other districts are doing this. This is kind of a trend. And so they give each other air cover to try new things. So that's a second important thing. The third that we're kind of just getting started on, it's been the promise of the league for a long time, but the league has a test bed, a place where, where new ideas can go to be trialed, um, products can be trialed, and people can kind of sign up um, with their school or district 
to try things out and provide feedback. So I think that there are, you know, many, um, everybody knows kind of the benefits of a professional community, a professional learning network, how people support each other and help each other through challenges. Um, but this notion of the league as a test bed is something that's just, um, just beginning to ramp up. Karen, I had uh, Dwayne McClary on a uh, webinar with me a week ago. Dwayne is the director of the League of Innovative Schools. Mm -hmm. um, Dwayne and I um, noted that uh, in addition to being the 114 uh, of, of America's best school districts, um, they all, almost all, share uh, an interesting attribute, and that's stable and effective leadership really at the, at the superintendent, cabinet, and, and board level, which indicates that, that sticking around, uh, you know, and building support for an agenda over a long period of time is really, um, is really critical to letting innovation take root and then uh, be brought to scale. So I just wanted to note that, that, yeah. um, that leaders that stick around to do the work over time uh, I think it's it's really one of the important lessons from uh, from your league. The other one that's kind of goes along with that is we've really learned that is the combination of the leader and their own mindsets and their own view of innovation and trying new things and taking you know risks and that kind of thing um, as they manage their board and that kind of thing and the leadership of the district. And so one of the things right. we've had to figure out is if a, if a superintendent leaves and they go to a new district, you know, within a year, if they can get their new district on board kind of the same way, they, they tend to come back into the league. And likewise, when a leader leaves a district, the district kind of goes into a holding pattern. And if the new leader can join in and, and kind of pick up with their district, they too can, can um, kind of rejoin. So it's that combination of the district with a board that is with the leader, with the board that's supportive, and then the district leadership, um, and on down into into schools that that make this right. valuable and powerful. Um, we, we did also note that most of the leaders in um, those 114 districts are old white guys like me, um, but you and your partner districts have been really making a push at more inclusive um, leadership, and, and today you announced the uh, Center for Inclusive Innovation. What's the mission there? Yeah, so the vision uh, is a world where black, brown, and indigenous students can learn and grow and thrive. Um, so that's the vision in something I think we all would agree to, agree with. Um, the mission is to resource the creative ingenuity of communities, communities of color, that will create these education innovations that are designed from the start to, to enable black, brown, indigenous students to um, learn and to take advantage of these innovations. So the important thing is that people in these communities come, in, come into an innovative process as co-experts. They lead in many cases, they definitely participate in the development of solutions, and then obviously they are the ones who will benefit from them. Uh, Karen, we'll, um, we'll include a link in the show notes because this is not only for people of color. Uh, th there's some amazing resources there on inclusive innovation yeah. and how every edu education leader in America should be thinking about the way they invite um, educators and community members into their uh, innovation process. So it's an important center, not yes. just because it opens doors for people of color, but because it's a, a set of resources that we can all use 
to be much more uh, thoughtful about engaging our communities in creating better schools for all kids. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for launching that. It, it looks like a really uh, terrific set of resources. Um, Vic, the, I want to go back to the learner variability project. You, over the last uh, two years, have developed this amazing web of research that now is um, searchable um, by case study or by symptom. Uh, when you have a, a learning difference that you've identified or a, a symptom that might um, lead to uh, identification of a learning difference, you have this research web that really helps you connect with, helps teachers connect with um, important resources. I, I wonder as you think about the impact potential of the Learner Variability Project, where and how do you think it's going to make the biggest difference? Yeah, so, and and also just to sort of broaden a little bit, it, it, you know, it identifies the factors that we know learners vary on. So it's not just about deficits or learn, like traditional learning differences. You know, it's like, I may struggle with emotional regulation when I'm learning math, you know, it's like, I get anxiety. Um, right. right. And so it just identifies for everybody how we all vary. And then it has those strategies, both instructional and product design that have research to support that. Right. And so when I am, um, I mean, I think there's, there's kind of two or three areas that I'm really seeing impact play out. So first of all, you start with just this sort of mental model of learner variability. And we incorporate here the academic factors, the cognitive and executive function type factors, the social emotional, and then even just background factors, right? And so, so often when we're designing a product or even trying to help a child, if they're struggling in phonics, we just focus on you know, the literacy factors, and we just try to dive in on that. But this, you know, gives you a model and a lens that says, hey, you know what? Emotion actually matters when a kid's trying to learn to read. And we've seen this where a teacher or a parent says, oh my God, I just remember my kid has anxiety. When we sit down to read, they, they start stuttering and get tense and anxious. And, and, and it helps broaden their lens to what may be going on kind of under just the surface of, yeah, they're struggling with phonics right now. Right. So it brings that whole child lens in and opens everyone's mind. And when they're designing products to think about that. Um, and then the second thing is really making this actionable in those strategies that we give ways that people can, you know, implement strategies in their classroom or if they're designing a product. And so we're seeing lots of products. I mean, we've directly worked with, you know, over 30 products, major products impacted hundreds of features. Um, and then what's really exciting is there's a couple products um, that have used this framework as sort of the founding personalization framework for their product. So this is how they're instrumenting to understand the learners that are going through their product and they're mapping to these factors and they're designing in these strategies intentionally based on that to have more learners succeed when they come in to use the product. And I'll say the last piece is we've just launched some of these product certifications to help signal in the market. Was this product intentional? Did they design based on research? And do they have some level of supports for learner variability? And do they think about that? Because we hear from districts and teachers, what they're struggling with is the diversity in their districts and schools. The school pop the learner population is so diverse. And in any classroom, that's what teachers struggle with every day. And we even did a national survey. One of the top reasons they use education technology is to support that diversity. Um, so how do we make it so people are doing that based on research and with this full diversity of learner lens. And so that's, you know, those are some of the areas we're seeing a big impact. Yeah, I appreciate that. I noticed on the website today, you had a great quote from uh, our, our 
colleague, uh, Dr. Pamela Cantor, where she acknowledges that it's not just the learning differences, it's the way learners interact with the context. And so your site really does a great job of, of both uh, helping uh, teachers identify context variables and, and learning differences in the way that those two interact uh, in, in a really smart way. I want to jump into sort of a lightning round and just give each of you a, a quick chance to respond to a couple different dimensions of, um, of innovation and give you a chance to mention uh, something that you see going on or why you think that is, um, is an important uh, dimension of innovation. So just headlines against a, a couple of these opportunities. So when you think of the category of learner experience, what are the what are the innovations that you're most excited about? Karen, we'll start with you. Yeah, I'm still interested in those kinds of innovations that, uh, that are powerful learning experiences. So things that allow students to build their, um, their reflective muscle, their inquiry muscle, and develop agency. One of the things we've seen with COVID is that students, if they don't have any self-motivation, if they aren't like self-starters and don't have sense of agency around their learning, they're not, they're not, it's very difficult to get them to do anything. So I think those kinds of those experiences that are um, are relevant, authentic, uh, get kids excited, get kids involved, um, are the things I'm excited about. Karen, uh, in the show notes, I'll link to your um, your microsite on challenge-based learning. Yeah, we love that topic. We we just published a book on place-based learning, and it's all about community-connected project-based learning. Your challenge-based learning site is is very similar. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine that's a topic that we both uh, share an interest in. Yeah, challenge-based learning is very specifically um, what we're excited about, right? Getting students engaged in a challenge that is in their community, in their school, in their neighborhood, in their family, um, and be developing the methodologies for solving those. So it's a process, it's inquiry, it's right. understanding how to, how to um, find the experts and, and put ideas together. Love that idea. And actually, one, one other thing about challenge-based learning that's very, very important is the end of it is not just present a solution, it's take action. Try it, see what happens, reflect back. I love that. Um, Vic, learner experience, what's the LX innovation you're most enthusiastic about? Well, it's actually kind of, I would say, the, the infrastructure to kind of make that happen. Um, yeah. So the tools that are out there and that are coming out that are so amazing to allow kids just do a completely different, you know, level of learning. And I'll just give a couple of examples and especially taking advantage of the real world and all of the information and data we have on that. You can sit at a computer now and bring in, you know, there's things like Tuva Labs and Desmos and Nuzella, which brings in outside journalism. Um, NOAA has these amazing kind of mapping tools based on NOAA data. My daughter just did a big um, essentially challenge around mapping uh, the biggest surf spot in the world in Portugal the, and wow. used the NOAA database, modeled it in person herself, and then went and looked at the real data and is comparing that. She's in seventh grade. And this is all free, a free tool, yeah. you know, to be able to do this. And, and they're, you know, with Zoom, they're having a NASA scientist, geologist, you know, pipe in to, to talk about all this stuff. And so these, these tools are getting better. I think the trick, the challenge, what's holding back is is getting the market to demand this, right? Yes. That's 
we all want this and it's there, but it's not, we're still stuck in like, how am I going to get from this standard to that standard and improve my test score? And that's where I'm going to put my budget towards, right? So how do we unlock the demand side on this? So this is where the money is flowing and then creating a whole groundswell of tools to make this possible at a really large scale. And especially for kids who are underserved and don't yeah. have these experiences otherwise, you know, going from the sort of elite schools where these things can happen to all, to everybody, to making sure this is uh, the way that all people are learning. And Vic, I, I think of the advanced modeling tools that are available now, uh, Concord Consortium has some great ones. Yeah. I, I think of even the fact that you can now get PyTorch and TensorFlow um, open, machine learning tools on, on mobile devices or on uh, laptops um, for high school kids to really engage in very sophisticated um, investigations and problem solving in their community. For us as adults, that requires a, a new mindset of being willing with young people to walk into complicated problems with new tools and say, I don't know how to use that, but how, how might we do that together? So. I'd love uh, both of your examples. Let me, I want to bundle a couple things together and just measurement and credentialing, sort of how we measure and communicate um, developing capabilities. What, what are you excited there about there, Karen? Well, I'm excited. I'm, yeah, and I would bundle a few things together here. One is excited about this whole area of, um, of uh, you know, learning and employment records, something that can really yeah. capture who I am as a person through my career, what this, through my education career and then on into my career. So it's right. something that I would own myself. Um, it is me as a learner, it's my profile. I understand much more about myself as a learner. I know where I'm going. So it requires these sort of progressions to be designed and integrated into this notion of a profile. Um, and so then you have this, what then layers in very importantly are new kinds of assessments and ways of knowing whether you are progressing and capturing that data and that evidence that shows that. So then you are kind of thinking about your profiles. You're also thinking about your, your learning progressions and how you're advancing um, on into the workforce and then credentialing. Um, you can begin to award, you know, micro-credentials or different kinds of credentials that will, that will demonstrate um, to somebody that you share it with, that you actually have uh, competence in a, in one skill or um, or some sort of knowledge. Yeah, that, that's really exciting. I think there's three or four super important innovations there. One is yeah. the idea of a portable <laughs> learning record. Yes. Right. Two is some improved measurement strategies so that you're combining formative assessment to track both growth and proficiency in important skills, not just in math and reading, but across success skills. Three, you're credentialing that, so you're combining a set of assessments into a recognized credential uh, that's portable with that record and recognized by a large audience. And then you talked about the link to talent development so that it, yeah. it enables um, professional growth uh, within your career. It might even unlock new, new compensation opportunities. And I'll just, I'll just give a shout out to your leadership on micro-credentials. You're the, the leading provider of micro-credentials, and we're seeing more and more districts adopt your strategy of, of, of micro-credentials as their, as their primary talent development strategy. So that's really a combination of the innovations that you described. Yes. Vic, um, uh, in, in those categories, 
what would you uh, shout out? Yeah, so I, actually I'll highlight some of the challenges, which I think provide opportunities for innovation uh, across those, because I agree. I mean, obviously, Karen and I work a lot together, so we agree on a lot of these things. <laughs> we <laughs> talk about these things. <laughs> I know. So first, learning measurement. That is a perpetual challenge, and it is right. something that also, for people innovating, they have to realize that this field is much more nascent than, say, in medicine, right, or in, in other sciences. And, you know, I used to always give the story when I was at the Hewlett Foundation, you know, they funded, you know, climate change research, um, population development and education. And it kind of dawned on me, we were trying to do strategic philanthropy, outcomes focused grant making. And, you know, I said, if you take the top 100 climate change scientists and ask them, what's one measure that like represents the health of climate change, you probably get about five to eight different answers. And they'd all say that they're reasonably good measures, right? Whereas if I ask the top 100 experts in learning, what's one measure that represents the state of learning, I'm probably going to get about 90 different answers. And most of them are going to tell that the other ones are not right and not accurate for various reasons, right? right. And so, so it's, it's, it's much harder and we need to move forward. It is hard to measure learning, but that's where we need a lot of innovation to really kind of empower the system. The next thing I'll, I'll jump on that, that, that build on that is is actually one of the things that it brings in equity challenges as we bring in AI and large scale technologies. And this is where the randomized control trial, this is one of my latest things that I've been really kind of concerned about, but thinking about how to improve. Um, and it dawned on me, you know, we, we worked with a product where it had an AI component to it. It gave feedback to learners and, um, it was from a university, well-researched, uh, and they rolled it out to about 80,000 kids. And then later they found out that actually it was telling all the English language learners that they were wrong when they were actually right, wow. right? And first of all, that's, that's actually not just a neutral experience, that's damaging, that's hurting right. the child, right? And you take just rough percentages, 80,000, well, that's probably about 6,000 kids, 7,000 kids that have that experience. Yeah. But here's the kicker. If I ran a randomized control trial, which is considered the gold standard of evidence, guess what? That product actually probably would have a positive effect size on aggregate, right? It's probably that the kids doing well could jump really high. The kids in the middle of the curve still doing pretty well. And, also, and this is just, you know, seven, eight percent of kids. And so it would be washed out and it would have an aggregate net, you know, positive effect size. And we would say, hey, this is great. We have efficacy. This works. It's only if you look at those subpopulations, which yeah. often are underserved populations intentionally, that we can tease apart. And you imagine, you know, I'm a former funder, I put in money and say, scale this to millions of kids. And it's systematically hurting these English language learners, right, in this case, but you could substitute kids with learning differences, with mental health challenges, executive function, any sort of dimension that this could happen to, and at a really large scale. And so really, how do we understand variance that we ask when we see effect sizes? Are, is it highly variable, you know, whether learners succeed or not in this product, and doing subpopulation, analysis as much as we can in these is really, really important. And then um, the last piece I'll touch on getting to sort of then when we get good with this, you can do the competency-based learning. And the one big area is we have competencies and, and pathways and, and credentialing and things. Where I don't see enough is if a learner is not getting the competency, then what, right? And that's what I hear, you know, people saying, oh, they're going through this progression a kid didn't get this competency, now what do I do, right? And, and that's where helping understand learner variability, bringing in science, you know, understanding different ways that you can support that, and how do we right. bundle that elegantly to kind of keep them moving forward? And, and so I think that's a really important area. 
And that's the promise of AI and how yeah. and how we can get better recommendation engines, which is still yeah. a big promise. I it's not necessarily there yet. And and I think it, you know you you guys have done such a great job of leading um, on innovation for equity. And this is a case where you when you do competency based learning, you have to combine it with weighted funding and make sure that you're provisioning extra time and support for learners that that need it. And you guys have done a great job leading on on equity innovation for equity so i appreciate yeah, and just, that and just getting started there that's that's important a anything on learning formats that you're interested in new school models that you're excited about i mean i think one of, so one of the things i think is is also really exciting is how we leverage the internet to get it's kind of this learning at scale right so schools i think everybody knows now i mean we hear kids and teachers and everybody like can't wait to get back to what used to be how we thought about school and that really has to do with the relationships people are excited to see their teachers in person see their peers in person i mean it's it's so that's important but the the learning at scale how we leverage expertise in mathematics for example to create a whole national cadre of tutors that people could access regardless of where they are build in relationships so they can get to know their tutor even though the tutor may be across the country or another place but finding out getting someone who looks like me understands me can get to know me and i can count on to help me for 10 minutes or for 45 minutes a day i mean they're different different formats but I, so I think that's one thing that we're very excited about is this notion of learning at scale. It kind of started with MOOCs, but kind of moving on from there, how do we get to this much more scalable model um, for supporting learners where they are and, uh, and, and with what they need? Nick, uh, are you a big fan of uh, micro schools and nano schools and pods and all that? What do you think about new learning formats? I, I don't know if I am from from that perspective and there there are huge equity challenges with that, yeah. that that i do fear like we're not it's we're too far from that right now to be able to say hey this should you know go out but i do think i mean harping on that how do you bring in the outside world into the learning experiences and schools that do that well and you know what kids should be able to go to youtube and use tools and like all these things rather than sitting inside and just doing you know worksheets and traditional you know modalities of of learning and so i think um you know that's that's still the schools that do that well or the experiences that do that well then inspire learning out outside of school which is when you really get things going and um, I think, uh, you know, to Karen's point, you know, providing expertise uh, at scale for many kids and then embedding also the relationship piece. Uh, I think the big thing we haven't unlocked, I know, you know, Christensen Institute talks about this a lot is social capital, you know, is still one of the biggest determinants of success. And what are innovations that can really build that for kids that don't have that and families that don't yeah. have that? And how do we, you can do that at mass scale if you can figure out how to, <laughs> how to basically design, design it um, once, you know, the technology is there. It's just figuring out how to do this and what the right models are. Yeah, CODs may transcend, they may, they may stay, yeah. um, but again, equity is a huge challenge there. Small groups, and we've always known small groups, you know, interaction, working together on things, um, having much more individualized supports and working with peers, those are all good things. So how that plays out on into the future is going to be important. So I could do this for another hour with you guys because you're uh, the experts on innovation. Um, I, I totally appreciate your 
your time and your insights today. But um, Karen, the main thing I wanted to do is just say thank you for the eight years uh, of leadership, not just at Di Digital Promise, but um, really the last 20 years, uh, your leadership uh, on, on innovations and learning in America, it's made a, a huge difference. Um, schools are better in this country because of the work that you've done at, uh, at Digital Promise. You, you stood up a great organization, recruited amazing team, built some high impact programs, and uh, I'm among uh, an army of people that, uh, that really appreciate your leadership over the last eight years. Thank you. Thank you, I very much appreciate that, thank you. Vic, what, what, what would you say as your uh, beloved Bosco's uh, back to <laughs> Apple? I think, um, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring, you create space for great things to happen, and uh, you help get resources for people to do great things. And yeah. doing that on a huge stage, uh, as big as that, you know, is there's tremendous potential and it's gonna be so exciting to see what happens. Thank you. So with a lot of appreciation for both of you guys, thanks for joining us. And uh, Karen, uh, thanks to you and uh, best wishes in your next chapter. Thank you very much. A big thanks to Karen and Vic for joining us this week. We appreciate their essential leadership in ed tech and equity and wish the best for Karen in her next chapter. For more information on EdTech, check out episode 242, Past and Future with Larry Berger. This podcast is also part of our exploration of the invention opportunity. To help and inform deliver new agreements, new practices, and new tools, Getting Smart and Edu Innovation are exploring invention opportunities and learning, and you can follow along with our journey at gettingsmart.com slash invention opportunity. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes and on the blog. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.